Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Our reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you yourselves may not grow weary or lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Um, my name is Ian. If I hadn't said that before, I'm the pastor here. We are Ecclesia. We've been a church for a little over six months now, and so we are so grateful to be together today. And we're starting a new series. And, and, and I, I was thinking about what, what would it look like to live out the most beautiful elements of the way of Jesus now, if you were to ask people in our culture, like, what are the most, what, what is the most beautiful life look like? And you might be tempted to pick, like, characteristics from all these different categories, like physical characteristics, material possessions, or charismatic gifts. Like, it, what, what does a beautiful life look like? Well, it looks like six-pack abs, a brilliant white smile that's perfectly straight. You would be wealthy, right? You'd have an awesome wardrobe. You'd be the life of the party. You'd have all, you know, just all this charisma would be oozing off of you, and you would be able to decorate a room and then take Instagram photos that look amazing, all wrapped into one. That's a beautiful life. Like, we have this sense of beauty, right? Like, Instagram is a platform that's built upon beauty, and in many ways, like, really true and authentic beauty. But what would it look like to live out the most beautiful way of Jesus? Now, I remember so vividly last year, Courtney is looking at me. We're in our room about to go to sleep, and she's looking at me with that look like, are you a stranger? do I know you? She's looking at me with this mixture of perplexity and sort of curiosity. And finally, she's reading a website, and she looks up from her phone, and she says, do you really think this way? And I said, yeah. You see, she was reading the description of the different types of the Enneagram. Now, for those of you who are not indoctrinated to this, <laughs> I, I, I can only call it like a almost like an oppressive worldview at this point. The Enneagram is like a, it's sort of like a worldview analyzer, but it gets down deeper into that. It's more like looking at the lens through which you see the world. It's part personality profile. It kind of, it kind of tells you how you move and live in the world, but more, I think more powerfully, and really what the true kind of uh, connection point for most people around the Enneagram, is it describes in a kind of non-reductionist way 
the way that you see the world. And so Courtney and I had taken the test, and we love this kind of stuff. I don't know about you, but I, I love personality profile stuff. I love birth order stuff. And this was a new one for me. It was one of those things that so many Christians had talked about that I was like, uh, I'm good. But then I started reading it. I was like, actually, this is quite good. And it turns out that I am a four on the Enneagram spectrum. And you can look later. If you haven't taken this test, find a free test later. Get on, you know, get on your phone, Google free Enneagram tests, see if you agree. But for me, when I read the description of the four, I was sitting there like, uh-huh, yep. And if you've ever read the description, some of you are familiar with this, the four, in a way, is very flattering but in another way is quite, like, condescending. So I'm sitting there reading this, and I'm like, oh, like, yeah, that's definitely how I feel. Ian Morgan Cron, who writes a lot about the Enneagram, he says of fours, they don't just have feelings. They are their feelings. And this whole process of kind of dealing with the Enneagram has been so illuminating for Courtney and I. Um, it, it helped us to begin to understand each other. Like, this is Courtney sitting on the bed like, Really? And this is after 10 years of marriage. She's like, really? That's you? Right? And I was that guy, like, I would cry at the end of movies, like, uncontrollably. Like, I'll never forget, Courtney and I, we started dating in high school. And uh, that's not a normal thing, even in Oklahoma. (laughs) And we went to see The Notebook. Now, You want to talk about, like, all all the, like, cultural masculinity stuff is all going on, right? Like, I played football in Oklahoma, right? And we haven't done all this stuff where we're sort of deconstructing manhood yet. So manhood is like, you don't cry at movies at this point, right? And, man, the end of that movie, if you haven't seen it, I won't spoil it for you, but my goodness, it is, like, weighty and sad. And I am just sitting there, and I'm, like, doing the whole thing, I'm like got something in my eye. But thankfully, one of Courtney's friends is bawling uncontrollably. Like beyond like any sense of being able to speak a word, she is crying so loud that everybody in the theater who was feeling the weight of this emotional moment is suddenly laughing at this little girl because she is dying crying. And I am so grateful because it provides the cloak of night that I need to like clean this thing up. But the Enneagram helped me begin to make sense of of some of the ways that I would respond, some of the ways in the world. Now, one of the descriptions that was used of the type four was a person that when everybody else seems to be content, when everybody else seems to be enjoying themselves, the four feels like they're looking in a window, like one of those storefront windows where everybody else is, is having a great time, enjoying the party. And the four's been invited to the party, but they just can't go inside. And enjoy it. And that picture for me, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I feel that. And uh, Ian Morgan Cron says that fours have a proclivity to melancholy, which I was like, yes. Like for me, the fall season is amazing, right? The the, the weather often reflects the way I feel inside. And I can put on things like, like Sufjan Stevens wrote an an album that is literally about his, his mom leaving him when he was young, it's the saddest thing ever, but it's also the most beautiful thing ever. 
right? And so I'm listening to this album, and I'm just sitting there like, this guy is, is singing my life right now. And so the Enneagram helped me make sense of all this. Now, I tell you all of that to say to you today that naturally I want to talk to you about joy. And my hope is that I've established my credentials, not as one of those happy-go-lucky people that's going to tell you everything is awesome, but as somebody for whom joy is a struggle. And for me, joy is a fight. It's something that I wrestle with often. It's something that I long for and I want and I see as a vision for my life. And my hope is that today, no matter where you find yourself, because, because if you're coming into a service and somebody's going to talk to you about joy and you didn't walk in here uh, with a lot of joy or a lot of hope, I, I hope that today we can engage that fight together. And that's really what this whole series is going to be about. We want to be a people who are living into the promises of, of the Christian way because the way of Jesus promises joy. And I think Jesus, like as we're going to look into today, was truly a radically joyful person. But so often, joy in our culture and in our world is packaged as this thing where it's about our circumstances, it's about the things that are happening in our lives, the things that are happening to us, and what we want to engage today is a joy that doesn't ignore our circumstances, and this is so important, that doesn't make little of them because life is hard, right? Like for so many of us, joy is not a struggle because we have everything going well for us and we just are ungrateful. Like for so many of us, joy is a struggle because life is hard. And so what I want to do today is engage it from that angle and ask the question, how do we live in this most beautiful way that Jesus offers us? So first, um, we're going to be spending our time in the book of Hebrews, and I hope that becomes apparent why in just a moment. Jen, can you put that slide up about the, the, the people that Hebrews was written to? Now, a couple of disclaimers, especially for the seminary crowd. We have no idea who wrote Hebrews, like not a clue. Now, here's another thing. I will say Paul on accident about 40 times. So when you hear me say that, just know it's an accident, and I keep saying it. People have hypothesized everybody from Apollos to Priscilla have written. One of the theories around Hebrews is that it was definitely written by a, women, a woman because it's the best argument in the New Testament. Um, so you can do with that what you will. But the situation in Hebrews, as best we can uh, guess from the text itself, is that the Hebrew people are suffering for their commitment to Jesus as the Messiah. The writer of Hebrews tells the community that Hebrews was written to is that there's more suffering to come. They've been subjected to public shame because of their commitment to Jesus. They've even accepted the seizure of their property with joy. It's like, here's my stuff and here's a smile. Like Chick-fil-A, like my pleasure. Continuing, in danger of losing heart, you see, like, as is understandable, the people have sort of served, or they've lived in this way for a certain amount of time, and now they're kind of hitting the point where, like, is it worth it? You know, and so the writer of Hebrews sees that they might be in danger of turning a different way. Yes, Lord, straighten the screen. Some of them have given up gathering together because it's just getting too hard. Right? They, they feel like things have gotten to a point where it's just like, maybe it's not even worth showing up to, to our assembly, what, what would be our equivalent of church today. And the hearers are experiencing very public shame. 
And the image of Hebrews that we're going to step into today, today is one of athletic training, of starting with the end in mind. You can go to that next slide, Jen. Last week we talked about, actually go to the next one, the, the, the chart, sorry. Oh, yeah. It's not her, it's me, always, just so you know. The image of Hebrews is one of athletic, athletic training, of starting with the end in mind. Now, last week we talked about this, this paradigm, vim, vision, intention, means. And so I just wanted to illustrate that through this paradigm. So vision, the, the, the author of Hebrews is going to encourage us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So our intention is to run towards him, to finish our race. And the, the, the writer of Hebrews is going to offer us the means to get there, to cast off every weight, to cast off sin, and to reframe suffering as discipline from the Lord. And then that enables us to reach our vision. So what we're going to do today with this passage in Hebrews 12 is we're going to reverse engineer it. We're going to start with the place that the writer of Hebrews, not Paul, tells us to uh, fix our eyes. And then we're going to look back at what we do in light of that. So it may seem simple, but I love here, too, that this is one of the few instances in the New Testament where the author just uses the name of Jesus, especially in the epistles and the letters. Um, the, the author of Hebrews is pointing us to this human reality of Jesus. Fix your eyes, not on Jesus, the Messiah, not on Jesus, the conquering king of all the earth. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because the writer of Hebrews has spent a considerable amount of time establishing that Jesus has been where you are now. Jesus has been through it, and he has made a way. So first, we want to read in the text. So let's turn over Hebrews chapter 12, and let's dig into what the Lord has for us today. It says in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely to us. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're going to start today with this idea, Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. This verse is an echo to an earlier argument in the book of Hebrews. The author is demonstrating to us that every bit of our lives, even the really difficult parts, Jesus has already lived through. He is the pioneer. We walk on territory and in grounds that have already been traversed by Jesus. Hebrews 2 verse 10 tells us, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus has gone the way before us. He is the pioneer because he is the one who is engaging the sufferings that so often await us in this life. Now here's the thing. I think we hear this story so much that it, we can become almost inoculated to it. Think of all the cultural myths about God. Our default mode, if we're honest, I think, is to think of God as, as distant, as far off, removed, unconcerned with the realities of our daily life. Like, sure, like, I don't know about you, but I wasn't a Christian my whole life, but I definitely believed in God. I just didn't think the reality of God had anything to do with my daily life. 
And so for me, that paradigm shift towards the way of Jesus was all about how seeing how Jesus' way was about every ounce of my life. And from the beginning, God is telling a quite different story throughout the library of Scripture. God plants a garden in the beginning of the Bible, and he walks in the cool of the evening through it. He goes before the people of Israel as a cloud and a fire, just this visceral presence, this visceral reminder that God is here. His glory fills the temple that the people of Israel build, and God eventually uh, comes to them in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, and he's called this phrase, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus doesn't come as you would expect a God to come. He doesn't come as a conquering king. Like, if you were God of all the universe, what would you do in strolling through the place that you made? You'd be like, hey, I would like some coffee now. Snap your fingers. This is not who Jesus is or what he does. Jesus doesn't come as one demanding to be served. He's not moralistic. He's not self-righteous. No, Jesus comes and this has everything to do with who God is, because as the Hebrews, uh, as the letter to the Hebrews opens, in the past God has spoken in many ways and in many places, but now he has spoken fully and finally in his son Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of his being. Friends, this is so good and so, so important for you to realize. God looks like Jesus. God is always like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. We haven't always known that, but we do now. And Jesus comes and he displays the reality of the kingdom of God. He comes eating and drinking at parties. Yes and amen. He comes making friends. He comes feeding people. He comes healing their diseases that haven't just wrecked and ravaged their body, but have isolated them from their communities. Jesus doesn't just come to live a comfortable existence, insulated by his power. And friends, this is a word for us in the American church. There are ways that we can sort of tiptoe into the way of Jesus, but still find comfort in our security and in our wealth. But this is not who Jesus is, not what he did. Jesus comes and he suffers with us. And eventually he will suffer for us. This culminates in a cross and as Hebrews notes, it's an impossibly painful and shameful death. Friends, we have no, uh, no equivalent of the kind of death that Jesus died, not just from its, its excruciating nature physically, but the kind of shame that was associated with it. And we see this in Hebrews 12, that Jesus shames the shame. He scorns the shame that lays before him because he's going to die on a cross. And the crucifixion was the most shameful death a person could die. Jesus was viewed as cursed by his own people. And Jesus, on the cross, completes his course of suffering. He suffers all that it means to be human. He suffers betrayal, and he suffers physical death. And he suffers with us and for us. And friends, as I look around the room, I know so many of your stories. I know so many of you have endured unimaginable suffering. And some of you right now, as you sit here in the midst of it, would you hear this gospel today? Jesus has been there. And this is good news. He is there with you. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you do. he is with you. And he will always, 
as Hebrews is trying to point us to this reality, he will always be there. Jesus didn't come giving reasons for our suffering. He didn't come to explain them. He came to bear them. The singer John Mark McMillan has this brilliant new song, and he says it so simply. I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a Savior that suffers them with me. Or the theologian Nicholas Walterstorff, he says, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. And I always thought this, this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. And a friend said to me, perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is splendor. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote that on losing his own son. And friends, if you are here today and you are in pain, would you hear the good news that Jesus has been there and he shares it with you? And, and this is an astounding claim. Think about all the cultural myths that push against the idea of God. They're all saying, well, you know, like if God made the world, then he, he's not doing a very good job at, at curbing evil and making sure bad things don't happen to good people. And I, yeah, you see it. You see the problem of evil. It meets us every day. But the reality that Jesus has suffered with us and for us, and it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there, and that's really where we get to the point where we can turn this suffering and this sorrow into something much more beautiful and much more hopeful. The cross is not the end of Jesus' story. Resurrection, new life that bursts the bounds of suffering, it would be of some comfort to me to know that God had been through what I will go through in this life, that he'd suffered my pains. But eventually, if that's all that had happened, if all we had was a Savior on a cross— Death still gets the last word. The death of God still is the last word in the sentence. But if, as the gospel stories proclaim, that on the other side of this cross there is resurrection, there is new life, that our Savior dies on a cross on Friday, and on Sunday he is raised as the conquering king of all the world, then suffering becomes not just a fact of life, it becomes the way. It becomes the way that Jesus has pioneered the path to victory and to joy. The author of Hebrews exhorts us. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the one who has gone the way that we are traveling, and the perfecter, the one who turns our suffering into joy. And friends, it is so important to see Jesus doesn't just appear to die. It's not just an idea that he doesn't live out the fullness of his life. He is physically killed on a cross. He is physically murdered by the religious leaders and the political factions and the powers of his day. He goes down into death. But he can turn suffering into joy because he doesn't minimize it, doesn't make little of it. He goes through it. He conquers it. He overcomes it. He physically rises from the dead. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to the pioneer, the one who has gone the way that we will go, and the perfecter, the one who has made sure that there is beauty and life and joy waiting for us in the end. The author of Hebrews 
then offers this about Jesus. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him has endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of God. Jesus' path to his rightful place at the right hand of God was one of shame and suffering, but he undertook it with joy. The whole of Jesus' life was lived out of a deep well of joy. And friends, this is what we want to dive into. Have you ever been around one of those people that just emanated joy? Don't you hate those people? No, just kidding. I recently had the opportunity to spend time uh, with a pastor in New York City named John Tyson. And he's a, he's a brilliant man. Like, one of those people, and I don't know if you've ever had this in your field, that you spend time with, and you're like, I want to be like you. In whatever way that could be an embodiment of me, I don't want to copy you, but I want to be like you. He's, he's successful in all the worldly ways that we put on pastors. He's planted churches. Uh, he's got a great team around him. He's written books. Like It's, it's stuff that I, I personally aspire towards. But I just rarely had the opportunity to be with somebody like him. He just invited us to live kind of his life with him for a week. And so we were in New York City. He has a random house in the Poconos that we were wandering through the woods in Pennsylvania. This Australian guy who's, you know, super hip looking, just wandering the woods in Pennsylvania. And I could ask him questions about our church, things that, I seeing, things that we're seeing in the church in America. And he had these, like, really brilliant perspectives on them. And, you know, he's done all these things. And I was just looking at this guy. I'm like, man, I... I want to be like this guy. And as I spent time with him, it became clear to me the thing that was drawing me to him, the thing I found most inspiring was not the fact that he'd accomplished all these things. I've been around people that have accomplished things. It was the way that he lived his life with this profound joy. Now, I don't know if you've ever been like me. I'm sometimes around those people, and I'm just sort of a little bit maybe skeptical or cynical of why they can live that way. I'm like, yeah, you just had a great life. Like, stuff's just worked out for you. But as we spent time, as I spent time with John, what I saw was that wasn't the case at all. Things in their family, things in their church had gone horribly and painfully wrong. But John's life was lived out of this deep well of joy. John's life was lived in this sort of radiant and magnetic way because... Because he lives a life that is present with Jesus. Now, here's the other thought I had, was that some people are just sort of wired this way. Have you ever been around one of those people? They're just happy-go-lucky, and they're the best people. I need them around. I always tell people that are so joyful and happy all the time, I'm like, dude, I feel enough sadness for both of us. So you just, you do that thing. I'll be over here looking in the window. But then I found out he's a four like me, so... This caused me to sort of think, like uh, the vision I have for my own life and my own family is pursuing this kind of joy that John lived his life and embodied for me so well. And here's the thing. Despite all of our cultural myths and our pictures of Jesus as the sort of white man with blue eyes, like carefully like cuddling lambs and weird stuff like that, like this is a first century Palestinian Jew. He wasn't light-skinned. I promise you that. 
But in spite of all those images that we always see, like Jesus was a radically joyful individual. Now, I don't think this meant that he was an extrovert. Friends, we often associate joy with the person who's the life of the party. But just because somebody is, is you know, people are drawn to them, I think that's, that's equally dispersed across the extrovert-introvert spectrum. And Hebrews here tells us it was because of the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross. Like these two things are so unlike one another. The joy that was set before this like horrible and physical excruciating and shameful death. Like I don't know about you, but I get anxiety when I know I have to go to the dentist the next day. And yet Jesus could look to the end of his life and see the cross that awaited him and undertake it with joy. He knows what awaits him. And yet the author tells us that this, for him, is a way of joy. So how? How is this possible? And I think this is where all of this meets us here today. Briefly, I think there are two things that Jesus embodies throughout his life that fill this, this even though there's this terrible prospect of a suffering, excruciating death, that, that makes a way for a deep and lasting joy for Jesus. And I think they'll meet us here this morning. First of all, relationship. Jesus can undertake the way of the cross because of his relationship. To say that Jesus's life was filled with a deep and unfailing joy is not to say that everything went awesome for him. Throughout his life, Jesus was abandoned by those who followed him closely. He was ostracized and misunderstood by his own family. They thought he was crazy. His cousin was murdered by the state that he lived in. He was the constant object of scorn. He was accused of being a blasphemer, blasphemer for being the son of God. And you know who he was? He was the son of God. Can you imagine if somebody is telling you, like, you're a horrible person because you think you're Ian? Like, I am Ian. That's all I'm certain of. And people were always wanting things from him. You ever been in one of those situations where you just get the sense your relationship is somewhat transactional? And much more, Jesus came to face the darkness of this world. Like all the evil we see on the news, like Jesus is staring in the face. The first thing he does in Mark's gospel is he casts out a demon. Like Jesus is seeing the evil and the brokenness of this world up close. The evil of human hearts. This is heavy, heavy stuff. But throughout these moments, Jesus was able to cultivate a life of joy because he drew life from his relationship with the Father. You see this so poignantly in Luke's gospel as it describes Jesus stealing away in the midst of all the busyness, in the midst of all the stuff and the suffering. Jesus is finding time early in the morning, late at night to pray and to be with God. So the first thing that I think Jesus shows us as the way to joy is relationship, relationship with the Father, opening our lives up to Him. The second thing is the reward. Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame because of the joy that was set before Him, the joy that awaited Him. Jesus didn't just live in the present, and so often we, are succumb, we succumb to our own present tense orientation. We think, what will make me happy right now? What, what's the immediate gratification? What's the, the immediate dopamine hit that I can get? But Jesus is living with a future orientation. 
The reward that awaits him is exemplified by where Jesus is currently sitting, in full glory at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is exalted to be just exactly who he is. He's king over all the world. But the reward is also exemplified in Hebrews that through suffering, he would call us, you and me, his sisters and his brothers. Like Jesus doesn't just suffer the cross so he can get back to God and sit at the right hand of glory. He suffers the cross because he wants to know you. The reward is not just that he would be uh, glorified for exactly who he is as the risen king of all the world. The reward is that your life would be found in his life and that he would not be ashamed to call you his sisters and his brothers. Friends, his reward in no small and uncertain terms is you. Jesus endures the cross so that he might open up the life of the triune God, Father, Spirit, and Son to every single one of us. And I think as we turn in Hebrews, as we see the author then exhorts us, fix your eyes on on these spaces. And he says to them, he says, lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. So this is, we, we've seen a vision. We've seen Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. How do we then begin to move towards that? And the writer of Hebrews tells us, lay off the sin and the weights that, that, that weigh you down. See, the imagery here is one of athletic competition. It's actually one of running. And, you know, fortuitously, it just happens to be Marathon Sunday in Princeton, The writer of Hebrews is telling us as we come into the stadium to fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who awaits us, the one who is waiting for us at the end. And he's saying to run well, to run with perseverance, you have some things that you have to get rid of. The first one that he says, and we're going to take them in reverse order, is he says the sin. And as we see that Jesus is able to undertake the cross with uh, with joy because of relationship and reward, what we see is that sin is an impediment. To relationship. It is a barrier. It is a wall between us and God and us and the people around us. Sin is not just an arbitrary list of behaviors. Like God set up when he made the world and he was like making a list of like, yeah, this one, I don't like that one. I just don't like the way that sits. So no stealing. Not going to do any stealing. Bad for the people. But, you know, other things are okay. Like, God is not this arbitrary God who's got this list of behaviors that he's like, okay, some of these are good, some of these are bad. That's not what sin is. Sin, from the biblical New Testament perspective, is slavery. The old cartoons that always have those prisoners with those giant balls and chains running around, like, that's almost the imagery we get in Hebrews. You're trying to run a race, and yet you have this giant weight attached to you. And sin is difficult, friends, And I'm not going to go down a list of things that you shouldn't be doing. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Sin is difficult because it is a mirage of joy. It has all the appearance of that which is good for us. It co-ops our desires and our focus. And the author of Hebrews is exhorting us, lay that aside. That which you think is giving you life is bringing you death. Because Jesus is our pioneer, he has gone before us that we can actually do it earlier in Hebrews. It says to us about our sins. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize, 
such a powerful word, with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every single way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus, the pioneer, has gone before. And then it says in verse 16 of chapter 4, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, God is not like holding on to grace, hoarding it. He's saying to you, like, you're going to be tempted. Jesus was tempted just as you are. He did not sin. But in that temptation, you have an opportunity to explore and to approach the throne of grace with boldness. You can bring your brokenness to God, and he will come near to you. He's not going to withdraw from you. And so often when it comes, especially those of us who, who try to live in the way of Jesus, when we see those ugly and dark parts of us rising up to the top, we run away. We turn away from God, we distance ourselves from Him and His love, and He's the only place of healing, the only place of repair. Let us approach His throne, this right hand of God the Father with boldness, because we know that He loves us, because He has walked this way before us. And the second thing that it tells us, so sin is an impediment to relationship, And then the author of Hebrews tells us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, let us lay aside every weight. And this begins to pull us to focus on the reward, the future. The runners have been running for like 25 long miles and now find themselves on the home stretch. And the race often in these times would finish in a stadium. Thus the author's imagery in the earlier chapter of a cloud of witnesses. Now if you've ever gone running, which I hear some people do, it's not likely that you packed a backpack full of books, right? Like, I'm going to go for like a three-mile jog. Let me just like load up my stuff. Let me put on the heaviest coat I can find, like the real, the wool one. Uh, let me put on maybe two pairs of pants just in case. Like, even when you're running in the cold, you don't put on a bunch of stuff. Even the winter clothes designed for running are designed to be streamlined. Like, if you've ever seen somebody in those somewhat unfortunate tights, Right? I've been that guy, so I'm with you. Those things work also, turns out. But to finish the race, the author of Hebrews is telling us, we have to lay aside our burdens, to travel lightly. And the author uses two images to drive this home. Um, he, he says, lay aside your burdens. He says, put on Christ. Now, when I pack for a trip where I'm driving, I don't know if some of you are like me, I don't give any second thought to what I pack. Like, if it'll fit in the bag, it gets to go. Because that saves me from having to do any thinking. I just take my closet and throw everything because it's all going in the same car. I don't have to check it with somebody who's going to weigh it to see how much it weighs. So, whatever, it's great. Now, if I'm flying on a plane, I can't do that, right? I have to think about the reality of the weight and I have to think through this a little bit. Now, I'd have to be um, slightly more judicious if I was going backpacking. Any of you backpackers in here? Yes? Okay. Cool. Yes, some of you. All right. Excellent. Now, let's say I'm going on a backpacking trip. Now, there's an actual—I hear this. I'm not a, you know, a huge outdoorsman. I, I think God made the indoors so we could, could live there, uh, but some of you feel differently. When you're going backpacking, you have to be pretty judicious about what you pack, right? There's actually like a science to it where it doesn't hurt your back. It doesn't hurt your hips. You, you think about what you're going to need, you know, especially water. 
And what we see in this imagery as we're running to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, is that God is calling us to a life of generous simplicity, stewarding what we have but not being attached to it, because everything that doesn't help us on this journey is an impediment, a weight that is to be laid aside in pursuit of Jesus. And Jesus uses a similar image when he talks about laying aside and putting on. He says to us, he says, lay your burdens down. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And he says, for my yoke, which is the image of something that yokes two oxen together, is easy, and my burden is light. So laying off the heavier Every weight, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, is not just getting rid of the heavier things. It's putting on the peace and the rest of Jesus. Hebrews paints the picture of a life of joy as a disciplined life. Now, how many of you, if we said, let's go run a marathon right now, and, you know, we said, let's just go, no practice, no warm-up, no stretching, you haven't had any time to prepare, that would be fun for. Like, maybe, maybe a couple of you. But for most of us, a marathon is something that we have to prepare for, something that we have to train for. And for for us, like, people do run these things, and they do have fun, it turns out, right? But for most of us, to enjoy the act of running a long and arduous race, we would have to prepare. And the the writer of Hebrews is, is portraying to us a disciplined life as the way to Jesus. Now, it's every, it's very important that as he talks about this, and he finishes this in chapter 12, he says, understand that the, the, the trials, the things that you face, are God's way of coming to you, of bringing his discipline to light. It does not mean that God is causing all the suffering in your life. It says that God disciplines like a parent. And so it's so important to me, as you read the rest of chapter 12, for you to understand this, God is not, or the writer of Hebrews is not saying that all the suffering that you endure is because of your own, uh, is because God is trying to see how much you can handle or see how much is too much. No, not at all. There are forces that are uh, in contradiction to who God is. But as Hebrews tells us, God takes these struggles, these things that come at us, and he uses them to shape us to see the relationship that Jesus has for us in the middle of the trial. Jesus has gone before us. He is with us, and he awaits us in the end. Friends, this is joy. And if you're in the middle of trials, right now, if you're sitting here and you're saying, yeah, I haven't felt joy in a long time. If, if your marriage is hard, if you're unemployed or you're underemployed, you wish you had a different job, you're dealing with sickness or regret, you wish you were in a relationship, you're single here today, and you're just like, God, like, are there any Christian women or men out there? If you're sitting in a place where you feel like your circumstances are leading you to discontentment, I want to tell you something that may seem so incomprehensible, but we see it in the life of Jesus, and we see it in the people that are that the letter of Hebrews is written to, is that there is a joy available. The kind of joy that leads you through the darkest valleys. The kind of joy that the author of joy has traversed many times because he is your joy and your strength. Let's pray together. God, your joy... I know for many of us, it seems like it is elusive, God. But what we see throughout the, the testimony of the Scriptures, God, throughout the, the testimony of believers in our lives, is that joy is available. 
not in spite of or belittling our circumstances, not belittling the things that we've experienced, Lord, but through them. And so, Jesus, I, I just pray this morning that as we've encountered this word, that for, for even some of us today, the, the hint of joy as a possibility may seem like kind of a cruel promise. It may seem so far from our experience of everyday life that it may paint you as somebody who is, who is elusive and who is far off. God, would, it, would we see that the, the opposite is in fact true? God, that you are near. God, and that you are bringing joy through every circumstance. And Lord, as we accept the relationship, God, of the one who has gone before us, the one who has endured all of our temptations, all of our suffering, and did not sin and did not succumb, God, would we see that you are near. And God, would you build in us a future orientation, an orientation of joy, that there is a great and eternal laughter that awaits us at the end of all of this, God. Not because everything happens for a reason or it's all going to be okay, but God, you are the God who suffered the very dregs of death and you came out the other side, resurrected the king of new life and new possibility and you make all things new. So Jesus, we ask that in this moment you would be near to us. Lord God, that your joy would be our strength, your joy would be in us and your joy would be complete. God, give us grace to receive it this morning. It's in your name we pray, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.